1: to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to Jessica Traunstein, who is the author of Segregation by Design, Local Politics and Inequality in American Cities. The book is published by Cambridge University Press this year. And I have the real pleasure to have Jessica on the line today. Jessica, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. Thank you so much, Heath.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's so many things that I love about the book uh, that I want to talk to you about. But why don't you share just a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, where you are now, share with us who you are.
0: Sounds good. Um, I am an associate professor of political science at the University of California, Merced. I have been here for nine years. Prior to that, I was an assistant professor at Princeton University. I got my PhD in 2004 from the University of California, San Diego, and I'm a scholar of local politics. I study Everything from cities to school districts to counties, anything at the sub-state level. And my research focuses on representation and underrepresentation, representation elections, um, public goods.
1: Yeah, the, the book is um, really, really interesting. And before we even get to it, would you just share um, uh, a little description of, of the cover of the book, which is so um, uh, is so different from what we've come to expect, uh, who designed the the cover and and also the the, uh, the 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 treat that comes in the first couple of pages of the book.
0: Absolutely. So I worked with a phenomenally uh, skilled artist named Derek Ritter, who um, actually approached me about creating a a graphic novel or comic version of my academic work about a year and a half ago. And we started this collaborative project that was uh, really one of the best experiences I've had as an academic, trying to take my academic story and turn it into something that was consumable by people who had no idea what political scientists do or study or think about. And Derek and I uh, produced this comic that then Cambridge agreed to publish as uh, the first part of the book. And in the process, uh, Cambridge actually um, suggested and, and Derek agreed to have Derek design the cover as well. And because he's such a phenomenal artist and because we had worked for so long on the comic he really understood deeply what the book was about what the message was and could with his artist's eye put into um put into pictures what what i was trying to say and he designed the cover uh, literally uh, on his own he came to me with with mockups and i I just said this looks fantastic, and uh, came. He worked with Cambridge um, to to create the the actual cover for the book, and he, uh, as you can tell, he's a he's a brilliant artist.
1: It's just such a cool part of the book. Um, I have to share his 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 website because uh, I if he has done such good work on this, uh, maybe somebody else working on a book uh, could uh, interest him in doing something similar. It's it's DerekRitter.com, Derek with an A and one R. Uh, it really is such a nice uh, – uh, uh, part of the book and, and sets up, as, as you suggest, uh, not in a uh, in a funny way, but in a serious way, the, the subject matter, uh, just in a different way than we normally communicate about our research. So let's talk about the, the research that you do, which which is um, considerable. Uh, I think that that uh, many many people have come to accept segregation, uh, especially the type we've seen over the the last several decades. As the result simply of, of personal preferences about housing and and simply people choosing to live in neighborhoods with people that resemble them in some ways. Your book views this very differently than that. Uh, before we get to your your argument and your evidence, I, I wonder if you could start by talking just about the idea of segregation, uh which types of segregation your book is focused most on, and and maybe in general terms, how segregated the United States is right now.
0: Sure. Segregation um, is a concept that people intuitively feel that they understand the definition of. But once you push on it a little bit, it turns out there's a lot of nuance to understanding segregation and, and measuring segregation, which as social scientists, we have to spend a lot of time doing. And I'll just sort of preface what I'm about to say by saying that almost all of the work in studying, measuring, and analyzing segregation has been done outside of the field of political science, largely by sociologists and economists. Um, but there are, you know, so, so this is, this is a, a, a field of study that has been um, well, well studied by, by others, but less well studied by political scientists. So seg- the United States is still a very segregated nation. But the way in which we are segregated has changed fairly dramatically over time. So segregation itself is just the residential separation of different groups of people. And mostly we think about racial or ethnic segregation, which is the idea that white Americans, white residents live in different neighborhoods than black Americans, Latino Americans, and Asian Americans. We can also think about segregation along class lines, thinking about neighborhoods where wealthy people live apart from middle class or poor people. Or we might think about the kind of segregation, one of the kinds of segregation that I study a lot in the book, which is homeowner segregation, where homeowners live in neighborhoods that are apart from renters. The way in which segregation has changed over time, though, is is not something that I think many people think about in in detail. And here's how I understand it. In the early part of the 20th century, as people were moving from foreign nations and the countryside into big American cities, we began to see a sorting process and people moving into distinct neighborhoods within these large cities. By about 1920, most cities had fairly well-defined racial and ethnic enclaves, as well as enclaves where uh, wealthier people lived apart from poorer people. That type of segregation we might call neighborhood-to-neighborhood segregation, where people are living within the same city but in different neighborhoods from each other. That type of segregation basically peaked across the United States in the 70s and then began to decline fairly dramatically. And there were a lot of stories in the 1980s and the 1990s coming out of newly revealed census data that showed that this type of neighborhood-to-neighborhood segregation was declining. But at the same time, a different type of segregation was increasing. That is segregation between cities where you have Most of the city population being people of color or most of the city population being white residents or poor residents and rich residents. That city to city type of segregation began to increase after the Second World War and has basically stayed fairly stable since the 1980s. So while we've seen a decrease in one type of segregation, we've seen an increase and a very little movement in a different type of segregation. So that's how I began this project, to sort of think about how we have changed our type of segregation, why we've changed our type of segregation, and what the political consequences of those changes have been.
1: Now, much of your book is is also about the, the the powerful yet often overlooked area of zoning.
0: Yes, I wonder if you
1: could explain a bit about what what zoning is It's something that most people don't know very much about um, when it gets its start in u s cities and and maybe sort of talk a little bit about why it's politically contentious
0: absolutely, so zoning. Sounds like it's going to be um, not the most interesting topic to study. It certainly sounded that way to me uh, when I when I first started studying local politics. But it turns out that zoning, and I'd say sort of more broadly speaking, the control over land, land use regulation, is the heart of city politics. And it's the heart of city politics because it is the one function that is reserved solely to municipal governments in the United States. State governments and the federal governments don't have the power that cities do to regulate land use. So... Land use regulation really begins in the early part of the twentieth century. Uh, there are a few examples of land use regulations, zoning regulations that are, that pop up in the late eighteen hundreds, but it really takes off in the early nineteen hundreds. And the very earliest moments of land use regulation were attempts, several attempts to. Restrict the movement of different communities of color. So there's a an example in San Francisco. One of the earliest land use regulation laws is an attempt to restrict the movement of Chinese residents outside of what the city leaders had prescribed as Chinatown. And at the time, there was uh, Chinese many Chinese um, residents of San Francisco were owners of laundromats, laundries, and the very, one of the earliest land use regulations was to prevent people from living above a laundry. So that was to prevent Chinese residents from living where they where they worked. Essentially, there are other examples of early land use regulation in New York uh, and Los Angeles, where the focus was more on. Um, separating different kinds of uses in the city or, or restricting the type of building that could occur in a particular area. Um, early regulations included restricting the height of buildings, not allowing apartment complexes in certain types of residential neighborhoods. So w- sometimes people think about zoning and land use regulation as this um, very sort of neutral process of separating you know noxious uses from residential areas but from the beginning land use regulation and zoning have been utilized to control the movement of people within municipalities to tell people where they could live and where they couldn't live and the story that i tell in the book is that it's perhaps unsurprising that these Laws, these land use regulations and zoning processes have nearly always benefited white property owners.
1: Now, you you do a lot of analysis in the book uh, to take these um, these arguments that you've you've just summarized and, and to to play them out in incredible detail. Uh, before we get to talking about some of the, the, the statistical analysis, I wonder if you could talk about where you turned to connect these dots together, because much of the book uh, takes place uh, outside of a, a regular um, widespread data collection, uh, major uh, uh, collect data collection by the U.S. Uh, Census Department. So where did you find all this information in the early 20th century, and, and, and how did you put that all together?
0: Well, it took a long time. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. why this book this book has taken a long long time to write. Um, I used a lot of primary source material, actually written by a lot of. Uh, people who were involved in the early planning community. So there were people in the early 20th century who were sort of academics that were interested in developing long-range plans for communities. And the idea was to try to manage some of the growth, the massive rapid growth that was happening in these cities in a way that would benefit the community. And this planning community wrote enormous numbers of articles, editorials, analyses of what they were trying to do um, as planners. There are also several excellent histories that have been written focused on this type of process. So some historians have focused on segregation. There've been a couple of historians that have focused on land use regulation. So I, I drew on a a combination of materials, also um, just early newspaper reports. So we, I am I have benefited greatly by the enormous uh, increase in digitization of of early materials. One of my favorite sources that I uh, draw throughout the book is the Crisis Magazine, which is the magazine that was. It, was and is published uh, by the NAACP, they were diligent about recording instances of zoning and land use regulation that were negatively impacting Black Americans at the time. So, sorry, please
1: go ahead, go ahead.
0: No, and so I there there were um, you know several several histories that that also drew on on NAACP material and court cases as well. So court cases are a treasure trove of of information as they are detailing specific harms that are occurring in uh, in various places throughout throughout the United States.
1: One of the uh, I don't know if it's a paradox, but uh, but a couple of the the forces that are running in opposite directions are the the uh, increased provision of public goods that is uh, that are going on in, in many of the cities that, that you're examining and in some ways the paradoxical response of, of communities to the the provision of those goods uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what what cities were increasingly providing in, in the the 1920s and 1930s uh, and and how uh, particularly white Americans responded to that. You do some really interesting analysis of when when uh, when public goods spending goes up, especially in certain kinds of categories, what the response is and an impact on segregation. So I wonder if you talk a little bit about that part of the book.
0: Sure. So it, it's an interesting um, sort of uh, process to try to think about what was going on in cities during this early period. And You might imagine that we have grown, uh, building our cities, developing sewer systems and uh, water delivery systems and all sorts of garbage collection and other kinds of public goods provision, that that was sort of a natural outgrowth of people moving to cities. But it wasn't. There was nothing in the early period that predetermined this kind of public goods provision. And in fact, in throughout most of the 1800s, Any kinds of public goods that were provided were were essentially privately provided. So we had private fire forces and private uh, security forces. We didn't have any massive systems of clean water provision or sewage treatment. And there was um, a change in the late 1800s, for the most part, and early 1900s, where a massive movement occurred in the United States uh, economy. Basically, the, the economic forces and businesses and homeowners pushed cities to develop these public goods, large scale public goods provision. And so cities decide in not all at the same time and not all at the same level to begin to do things like treat water and build sewer systems and uh, pick up garbage. Uh, One of the things that I love to read about are the histories at the time that were written about how stinky and awful it was to live in cities that didn't have these kinds of public goods provision and how scary it was when there was no fire force or no pressurized water to put out fires. So we see these sort of moments in several cities throughout the United States where there's an enormous conflagration or a a disease outbreak and the community comes together and decides at some level that they want to provide this collective good, that they want to do something like build a sewer system. But it's enormously expensive. It's very difficult. And so almost as soon as the cities decide that they're going to provide these public goods, there's also enormous pressure to make sure that the most powerful residents are served first. And that is the link that I try to develop, as you suggest, which is that as these cities are beginning to provide more and more public goods, they also begin to segregate communities in order to ensure that the public goods provision flows to the people who have the most power and resources in these communities.
1: Now, one of the stories that you tell is the overtime story, so, what you just describe characterizes uh, in, in some ways sort of the early historic period of the book, but you note that the the political influence necessary to restrict those public goods uh, from neighborhood to neighborhood uh, starts to weaken uh, and and a new process sets in related to suburbanization let well, right. 's talk about that that what are we talking about historically? And, and what did your evidence find about the relationship between suburbanization and segregation?
0: So there are a lot of different processes going on at the same time. And mostly this is occurring after the Second World War, although you see the, the sort of seeds of it are planted right during the, the Great Depression, essentially, as cities begin struggling for uh funds as tax the tax revenue plummets you you start to see some some early representations of, of what's going to happen later but really in the post-war period there is an enormous boom of building in the suburbs and I we could talk forever about why that is but I don't really cover that in the book it's much better it's much better covered by by other scholars so we see this enormous increase in a, the attraction of moving to the suburbs and At the same time, during the post-war period in the late 1940s, 1950s, and then really ramping up in the 1960s, at the same time, we have the rise of the civil rights movement and people of color, communities of color, particularly Black Americans, asserting their rights and So while suburbs are becoming more attractive for sort of economic reasons and the ability to move to the suburbs is becoming possible with the new highway system, suburban homes are really only made available to white residents. And so at the same time that the civil rights movement is gaining power in the cities and Black Americans and Latino Americans are running for office and then eventually winning some city offices it becomes ever more attractive to move the segregation process to the suburbs. And that is the sort of process that we've seen from the 1970s through today, is the maintenance of segregation along city lines and the preservation of suburbs as these white, wealthy enclaves.
1: Yeah, the the book, which uh, uh, everyone needs to go out and and read and buy and, and um. Uh, really take so seriously is the, the Segregation by Design, Local Politics and Inequality in American Cities. The book is published by Cambridge University Press this year, and the author is Jessica Trounstein. Jessica, thank you very much for your time today.
0: Thank you so much.